All right. Excellent. Okay, well, we're going to uh, take a one-week break from Proverbs. <clears throat> I've actually, I've got Proverbs 15, the first half, ready from last week. So it's just sitting on the sidelines, just waiting, itching to be, to be taught. But uh, anyway, we're going to take a, a week break from that because, uh, as I'd mentioned, uh, I guess it was Wednesday night or the Wednesday before, uh, there have been some of the people who've left the church um, during the uprising of 2023 that have reached back out and have had a uh, change of perspective, perhaps. <clears throat> so uh, I've, you all know that Casey Smith and Carrie, we have already reconnected with them. Uh, but then also, then also you know about the Lowe's and the Brownings. Those are the two families from Texas uh, that we have reconnected with. But now there are three others. Uh, this would be Tanner, Chris Thrower, and his family, and then Sam Smith, who have left the church or the uh, whatever you want to call it, the satellite campus of the Texas church <clears throat> meeting in Tecumseh. And uh, Tanner and I are going to meet today. And then Chris Thor has asked if we can meet next week. And I don't know what the future holds with any of these people in terms of what they're thinking or what they desire or what they want. But I thought it would be good for us to at least think through these issues biblically. What do we do when there is sin like this uh, and then there is repentance? What does that look like? And what is the expectation from the Bible for us as Christians in how we are to behave in that type of scenario, okay? Because whatever we do, <clears throat> we have to practice what the Bible teaches, right? We have to do and be faithful to God. And of course, no matter what the situation is, whether we're dealing with the church, whether we're dealing with our own homes and families, as long as there are two people involved, at some point, someone's gonna sin against another person, right? This is the nature of, of life, this side of eternity even for believers, because we all still have the flesh. And if you're married, you know that this is true, right? Your spouse probably sins against you all the time. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm sure you sin against your spouse all the time. And, and it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. So part of being married is practicing perpetual, lifelong repentance, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, right? Doing those types of things. And then certainly within the church, this is a way, the chief way we show our love for God. Well, the two great ways we show our love for God is first, love for his word, and secondly, love for one another. And part of our love for one another is being kind and gracious to one another, merciful to one another whenever there is sin, that we are to forgive each other. So what does that look like then in this situation and scenario if it comes to that point where those who have left desire some manner of restoration or reconciliation. Uh, what is the expectation? So I thought it would be good for us to look at some passages that deal with this so that we can already begin. And again, I don't know what the future holds because no one has stated to me what their intention is or what their desire is. This will all take uh, much fleshing out and many conversations and talking about through the issues to see if we even ever come to that point. But if it does come to that point, how should we respond and what should we do biblically, right, in the, in the biblical way? So I just want to look at a couple of passages today that address this issue, and then we'll go from there. We'll begin with Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 21 to 35, 
And here, the issue Jesus is addressing in this parable is the issue of forgiveness. Forgiveness. When one brother sins against another, when a brother sins against another, how often are we to forgive them? And how should we do that? Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison, until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also... Have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Here, the occasion of this parable that's being taught by Christ is this issue of forgiveness. And Peter asking this question How often should we forgive our brother? Right, up to seven times. Is this the expectation? Right, how forgiving should we be toward one another? This leads Jesus to say, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Meaning, there should not be a limitation on our forgiveness, on our grace, on our mercy. We shouldn't be thinking in terms, if this person sins against me seven times, then after the seventh time, I'm absolved from having to forgive them. I can be bitter, harsh, angry toward them, hold a grudge against them, and be done with them. Now, of course, he's not meaning here that we are stupid or that a person should just comp- should presume upon someone's grace. That I can sin against you and then say, well, no, you have to forgive me. And then turn around and do it the next day and say, no, the Bible says you have to forgive me. Of course, Jesus isn't teaching that we should be presumptuous or that we should take advantage of people. But he is teaching that when there is sin and the person is repentant, that there has to be genuine repentance and they're humble and they want to come to you and they ask for forgiveness that you ought to be forgiving to them. And we should be excessive in this forgiveness. Seventy times seven. That there's no end, no limit to this forgiveness. Then he tells the parable. The parable of the kingdom of heaven compared to a king wishing to settle accounts with his slaves. Right, he begins to settle accounts, and in verses 23 to 27, there is this slave who owes the king 10,000 talents. This is the debt that he owes, which is, again, in, um, in terms of their accounting, in terms of, of payment, it is an insurmountable payment. There's no way anyone in a lifetime 
of work and repayment would ever be able to repay this type of a debt. So it is an insurmountable debt that this slave owes to the king. And the king is exacting this debt from him, right? That he has to repay what he owes. And this is certainly a picture of us in the state of our sin. In our sin, we owe a debt to God that is insurmountable, a debt of sin that we can never satisfy and that we could never pay. And if God is treating us according to his justice, then this debt of sin, the repayment of it will be for all eternity. This is why sinners must suffer eternal punishment. Because no matter how long they suffer in hell, they will never be able to satisfy the wrath of God against their sin. Because the debt of sin is an infinite debt, for the one that we have sinned against is an infinite God. Right? That is why the debt of sin is an eternal punishment, because the sin is against an eternal God. And we understand and recognize this even in terms of human relationships. The greater the personage, right? the greater the person, the more severe, the more heinous an act against him. Right? If you go up and punch some stranger in the face out on the street, that is a sin, and that deserves to be punished. But if you punch the President of the United States then that deserves a greater and a more severe penalty because his person, the title, the position he has, is that of a president. And therefore, it holds a much higher penalty because of the greatness of the person. Well, when we sin, who are we sinning against? Ultimately, primarily, we're sinning against God, who is our creator, the eternal God, who is himself holy, just, righteous, and pure. This is why David says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so it is that the debt of man against God reaches up to the heavens. It is an insurmountable debt that we can never repay. And this is why the only means that this debt can be resolved is by pleading with God. Pleading with God and begging for mercy and God being merciful to us as sinners. This is as in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't ask God, what do I need to do to pay off this debt? What can I do to please you? He knows that the only way he can have the favor of God is based upon the mercy of God, only God being merciful to us. And here, at least initially, with this slave who owed this insurmountable debt, the king is merciful to him. He pleads with the king, he asks for mercy, and the king gives it to him, and he resolves his debt, right? He uh, feels compassion, he releases him, and he forgives him of this debt, The debt is no longer owed. It's been taken away. Therefore, he does not have it anymore. Then in verses 28 to 30, the slave, having been resolved of this debt, having himself just been a recipient of this unmerited favor, this mercy, and this grace from the king, he goes out and finds a fellow slave, one of his companions, who owes him a debt. And this debt is not an insignificant debt. It's 100 denarii. But in comparison to 10,000 talents, 100 denarii is nothing. It would be like a a couple of pennies versus a billion dollars. This is the debt that his fellow slave owes to him. 
The slave also is not able to repay the debt. So he falls down, he pleads for mercy. He says, have compassion and patience on me and I will repay you everything. Yet this slave who has just received such kindness and mercy, such love from the king, will not show any patience, any mercy, any grace toward his fellow slave. But he begins to choke him. He has him thrown into prison until he should pay back everything that he owes. Now, the explanation or the aftermath is that when the fellow slaves see this, they were deeply grieved. They understood the implications of what was taking place here. They understood the hypocrisy of this slave who had himself received such mercy and grace from the king, and then yet he was unwilling to show the same mercy to anyone else. And that is why the king calls him, he calls him a wicked slave. Because I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? If we go to God and we confess our sins and we ask God for mercy, then what does God do for us? He forgives us of our sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. God does that for us. Then if someone does that to us, if someone sins against us, and they come to us and they confess their sins, and they repent of that sins, and they ask for our forgiveness, then what should we do? We should do to them what God has done to us. God has forgiven us, therefore we ought to forgive others as well. And that is what Jesus is teaching here. We have to learn to practice this truth. And Jesus says that if we don't forgive our brother from the heart, then God will not forgive us of our sins either. He will do the same that he did to that wicked slave if we don't forgive our brother from our heart. Right? From the heart. Not just merely in our words. Not that we just say, okay, I forgive you, but inside I'm still holding a grudge against you. The forgiveness has to come from where? It has to come from the heart, meaning it must be true, it must be sincere, it must be genuine forgiveness that we give one to another. And the reason we're able to do this is because of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we understand what God has done for us, how merciful he has been toward us, then that should make it to where we also are able to show mercy toward one another and not to get hung up on these types of things. Again, one that expects God to forgive him, yet will not forgive his brother, shows that he himself does not understand the love of God. He does not understand the forgiveness of God. He does not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is impossible that someone has a right understanding of sin, of the justice of God, of the mercy of God, and that that will not lead him to be a merciful person. We must be merciful even as our Heavenly Father is merciful. And how many times do we sin against God? Rarely does someone, well, I mean, maybe in the family, but rarely in terms of our relationships to one another, does someone even sin against us seven times, right? In terms of a, a, a massive sin. Maybe it happens once or twice. But how many times do we sin against God in a massive way? We do the 70 times 7. We probably do that in a single day, 
against God. And yet, how often does he forgive us? Every single day. Right? Doesn't Jesus teach us that we are to pray and we're to pray daily? And one of the things that we are to daily pray for is for God to forgive us our debts. And every sin that we commit against God, whether it be a sin in our mind, whether it be a sin in our heart, whether it be a sin with our words or with our actions, even if it is a sin of omission, when we're failing to do something that we ought to do, whenever we sin against God, whatever that sin is, is far greater against God than anything anyone will ever do to you or me. It is impossible that someone's sin against us will ever rise to the level of severity as our sins against God. And though we sin against God in this way every day so many times, yet we find that God is always merciful to us. And when we receive that mercy, it should lead us to be merciful toward one another as well. Matthew chapter 6. And when that mercy is not there, then what Jesus is saying is it shows that that person has himself, does not have the forgiveness of sins, right? Because it's impossible that he has a right understanding of the gospel and the grace of God, and it will not result in him being a merciful person. Matthew 6, 14 says, If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If we don't forgive others when they sin against us, then God will not forgive us. Again, not that our forgiving others is the basis of our salvation. He's not saying we earn the forgiveness of God by forgiving others. But he's saying we prove that we have the forgiveness of God because that forgiveness will result in us being forgiving toward one another. And if we don't forgive others, it proves the love of God is not within us and that God has not forgiven us of our sins. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Ephesians 4, 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. There, he says, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all of these things along with malice, these things, he says, you have to put them away from you. Those belong to the old man. Those belong to the flesh. These are the things of the world. And he says those things have no part in the Christian life, right? In the way that we live and act toward one another, right? We're not supposed to have this kind of hatred in us, but rather we are to have love. And we're to be kind to one another, right? This is how we should relate to each other day in and day out. In kindness, not with harshness, not with meanness, not with this type of spirit, Right? This was part of the problem that was going on back uh, in February, a lack of kindness. There was no kindness in what they were doing to, to all of us. Right, It was a failure in love. But we are to be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Right? We have to have a tender heart.
toward one another. A heart filled with compassion for each other. Not filled with evil suspicion, not filled with bitterness and hatred, but with tenderness toward one another. Just as a parent is toward their children, right? They are tender, hopefully, toward their little ones in the way that they relate to them. This is as the Apostle Paul says that he is amongst the churches. He is tender toward them, right? Like a mother with her children. And so we are to be tender and kind toward one another. Then he says, forgiving each other. We have to forgive each other. And what is the basis for our forgiveness of one another? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We forgive each other as God forgives us. And when God forgives us, does God exact penance from us? Does he exact these types of things from us and expect us Okay, I'll forgive you, but you have to say a thousand Hail Marys. You have to go on a pilgrimage. You need to run through a thorn bush, sit out in the cold and the exposure, go to the priest and do all these types of things. Yeah, penance. Penance is the Roman Catholic's way where they have to work off their sins in order to earn and merit the forgiveness of God. Is that the way that God forgives us? No, he forgives us based upon his grace and mercy. We ask for forgiveness, and if we are sincere and we mean it, then God forgives us. He forgives us of our sins. And this is the way that we are to be toward one another as well. We are to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And our forgiveness of one another will never rise above what God has done for us. So does God ever expect us to forgive in a greater way than he's done for us? Never. It'll ne- it won't even come close to it. It, is, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what God has done for us. So he is not expecting from us something that he himself is unwilling to do. And not only is he not unwilling to do it, but he is willing to do it, and he does it toward us each and every day. And many times, we, we're not doing this each and every day because people are not sinning against us in these grievous ways each and every day. But they may do it here or there. But when it happens, then we just have to deal with those things. Now, forgiveness also does necessitate repentance, right? Forgiveness does necessitate repentance. So in terms of the offended party, the one who has been sinned against, and in our current situation, that would be uh, all of us, (laughs) all of us that I do believe we have been sinned against. So our expectation is forgiveness, to be gracious, to be forgiving, to be merciful. What is the expectation of the offending party? When someone is causing the offense and they are the one who has sinned, then there is the need for repentance. Luke 17. Luke 17. Verses 3 and 4. says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he get, sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So there, if the brother sins, you rebuke him. And if he repents, you forgive him. Right? When the person sins, in this case, it is the rebuke that brings him to the knowledge of his sin. At other times, it may be something else. Sometimes God brings some uh, cataclysm upon them, 
something happened, some event, whatever it is, there has to be some acknowledgement, some understanding, some recognition that I have sinned. I have sinned against God and I have sinned against man. Therefore, I'm going to go and repent. And he comes to you and says, I repent. Then what are you supposed to do? You forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns seven times saying, I repent, he says, you forgive him. If there is sin and the sin is repented of, then you forgive. This is the expectation on both parties. The, the offending party is to repent, and the offended party is to forgive on the basis of repentance, right? On the basis of repentance, not without it. We can't forgive without repentance, right? God does not forgive without repentance. We can be willing to forgive. We can be ready to forgive. We can have a disposition of forgiveness and desire it and pray for it, but forgiveness cannot occur without repentance because our forgiveness is to be like God's forgiveness. And does God forgive us without repentance? Does God forgive us while we're practicing our sins? No, we have to confess our sins. We have to acknowledge them. We have to turn away from them, right? This is the way we have to be. Psalm 32, verse 5. This repentance must include acknowledgement of sin, confession of that sin, and turning away from it. Psalm 32, verse 5. Psalm 32, verse 5. Here, just to show, we'll begin in verse 3. We are talking about sin here. Now, he's talking about it in relationship to God, but it would also be true in relationship to man. Because again, the paradigm for our forgiveness, for sin, repentance, forgiveness, is what God has done for us. So if we are to forgive the way God has forgiven us, then what we should look for and what there should be, the elements of that process should mirror or be similar to what we see with God, okay? Psalm 32, three, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There, when he was silent about his sin, this is when he was in his sin. He was practicing that sin, or he wasn't repenting of that sin. He had not come to the awareness, to the consciousness of it yet. He was in guilt. He was in misery. His body's wasting away. He's groaning all day long. God's hand of conviction is heavy upon him day and night. His spiritual vitality is dried up as with the fever heat of summer. Right Now, in terms of this particular sin, at that point, verses 3 and 4, has God forgiven him of his sin yet? Well, he hasn't yet because he's still in the sin. He's kept silent about the sin. But then notice in verse 5, Then I acknowledge my sin to you. God brought him to an awareness of his sin through conviction because this is what God does for his children. He will not allow them to remain in their sin, but he will bring them under conviction so that they will come to the knowledge of their sin. And then when they come to the knowledge of it, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. 
my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And then what does God do? You forgave the guilt of my sin. There must be acknowledgement of the sin. There must be confession of the sin. Right? That has to happen. Whether it is our sins against God or our sins against one another. Whenever we sin against one another, we have to admit it. Right? We can't hide it. We can't excuse it. We can't say, well, you know, I didn't want to do that, but you're just such a jerk and I can't help myself. You know, we, we can't do that and put it on other people. We have to admit and take our ownership of our own sins and what we have done against God and what we have done against one another. Just like in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son who went and squandered all of his possessions, his inheritance, in riotous living there in that distant land, when he was eating there, living with the pigs, desiring to eat the pods there of the pigs, it says that he came to his senses. He understood, he came to an understanding of what it is that he had done. He was brought to this point of misery, and this point of misery opened his eyes to the reality of his sin. And that's when he determined to go back to his father and to say to him, I have sinned against God and man, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he just desired to be made a slave, a servant in the household of his father. But he had to admit his sin, right? As long as he remained in his sin and remained obstinate, he would have stayed in that distant country. He had to come back and come to some acknowledgement of it and then confess it to his father that this is what I have done. I've done this against God and I've done it against you. And in the same way, I think, with our current situation, if there are people who are coming to an understanding or an acknowledgement of their sin and their wrong, there has to be acknowledgement of that. There has to be confession of that. They have to see the reality of what has taken place and how severe and grievous this sin is, right? And, and admit that and come to a proper understanding of those things. And then if that takes place, then it is incumbent upon us to forgive, to forgive. If they ask for forgiveness and they're acknowledging their sin, then we must forgive them. And we cannot love God and we cannot love our brothers without forgiveness, right? It is impossible to do so. Forgiveness is a manifestation of love. It is impossible on this side of eternity for us to show our love for God and our love for our neighbor without practicing forgiveness, right? We must do these things. John 13 John 13, 34 to 35. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So here, the new commandment Christ gives to us And now, according to 1 John, he says, not that it is a new commandment, but you've known this from the beginning. He's reiterating an old commandment. And that old commandment, which is a new commandment, and it's new every day to us, 
because we're to practice it every day and we never come to the end of this commandment is to love one another. This is what we are to do. This is the way that we show that we are disciples of Christ. Faith without works is dead. And what is the chief work of God that we must do? But to love one another. All virtues, all obedience can be summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is how we express and manifest our faith, who we are in Christ, right? The Christian life, it is through our love for one another. And that's why he says, love one another, even as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is how men will know that we are disciples of Christ, by the love that we have for one another. And then John 15. John 15 Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Here, this is my commandment. Whose commandment? Christ's commandment, the commandment of Christ. And if we are his disciples, we will keep his commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And his commandments can be summed up in one commandment, And that one commandment is love one another. And our love for one another is to be similar of the same nature as God's love for us. Well, then we have to ask, how does God manifest and show his love for us? How is the love of God most clearly revealed to us? 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, 7 to 21. First John 4, verse 7. First John 4, 7 to 21 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There, love of God and love for the brethren are inseparable. 
Right, they're inseparable, and actually they build one upon the other. The way that we show our love for God is by loving our brothers, because how can we love God who we've not seen when we fail to love our brothers who we do see, right, who are there in front of us in our very presence, right? And this is the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and the church is his body. The brethren are his body. So how can someone love the head and hate the members? How can someone love the husband and yet hate the bride? Right? It is impossible. So we ought to love the body of Christ because we love God and because we love Christ. Well, how does God show his love for us? Well, he says so here. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love for us is seen in the forgiveness of our sins. He sent His Son to die on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. So the love of God for us cannot be known or understood apart from an understanding of the forgiveness of our sins. Well, if this is how God shows His love for us, and our love for one another is to be like our love for God and like God's love for us, then what must be a crucial aspect of our love for one another? The forgiveness of sins, right? The forgiveness of sins. We ought to forgive just as we have been forgiven. The forgiveness of our sins is central to God's love for us, and it must be an aspect of the love we have for one another. And when we do that, it gives us confidence because this is a work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do this within us. And isn't the first fruit of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit are love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But the first mentioned is love. And really everything that comes after that is an extension of love, is a further description of love, is an aspect of our love for one another. So it is impossible to be a child of God without having love for God, love for the brethren, even love for our fellow man. Even Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we ought to do that. Okay, now, reconciliation and restoration. Right, what does that look like? Now again, all of this is assuming that there is a person who has sinned, that person has come to a knowledge of their sin, an awareness of their sin. That person has confessed their sin and has repented of that sin. Then what does it look like in terms of reconciliation and restoration? Are we expected to reconcile a relationship with them? Or do we simply take the forgiveness and say, I forgive you, but then we go our separate ways and we never see each other again? Right? What does that look like in terms of our relationship. Well, if there is a relationship that precedes, which has to be the case, right? But otherwise, how are you going to sin against each other if you don't know each other, right? So if there is a relationship that precedes the sin, then for there to be reconciliation, there has to be some similarity, some commonality in the relationship after the reconciliation as it was before. Just like a husband and wife. If there is a married couple and say there is infidelity in the marriage, in the relationship. And the one who is unfaithful repents of his sin, goes and confesses it, seeks forgiveness from the one that was offended, and the one who was sinned against forgives that person and reconciles with them, 
doesn't that necessitate them coming back together, right? To coming back together and living as husband and wife again. If there is forgiveness, then it will necessitate some coming back together again. Now, that does not mean that everything is water under the bridge, we forget everything, and we don't act like anything ever happened. Because there has been a sin that has been committed. And whoever has been sinned against in that situation, if it is the husband who committed adultery against the wife, then he cannot be upset that the wife would have certain expectations of him for many, many years, and that he would have to regain and re-earn the trust of his wife. And for her to expect him to have, I don't know, uh, some kind of a tracker on his phone where she can see where he's at at all times, to have some accountability as to what he's doing with his time when he's not with her, right? To have these kinds of measures in place is not outside of the realm of sanity, nor is it contrary to true forgiveness and reconciliation. Actually, it is consistent with true forgiveness and reconciliation because sin does have consequences. Even when there is forgiveness, even when there is reconciliation, there still maintains some consequences to sin that have to be dealt with. And in terms of these relationships, it takes time to rebuild and reestablish trust for there to be restoration. So in terms of forgiveness and in terms of reconciliation, I think that those things are immediate. But in terms of restoration, it takes time. It takes time and it takes the rebuilding of trust for that. Now, a couple of examples. First, John 18. John 18. John 18, 25 to 27. It says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Here, we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that this denial of Christ by Peter was a threefold denial, a threefold denial that he denied Christ three times. Now, is this a serious sin? Is this a grievous sin? This is a very heavy sin that Peter has committed against Christ. He denied him three times during the time of Jesus' greatest trials and sufferings. Right? When Jesus was suffering the greatest, when he needed Peter standing beside him, encouraging him, when he needed him praying for him, instead Peter is adding sorrow upon sorrow by denying his Lord and Master three times. So did he commit sin? Of course he did. Then chapter 20. Did Jesus throw him away because of his sin? 2015, okay, correction, 21, sorry, 2115. I was like, that's not it, but 2115 is it, 2115. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. This is the restoration of Peter after his sin. He denied Christ three times. So what does Jesus make him do here? He causes him to affirm his love for him three times. Three times. And Peter is grieved by this. But he knows why Jesus is doing it. He's doing it because he denied him three times. But Jesus doesn't cast him aside. He doesn't get rid of him. He doesn't say, you denied me three times. I don't want anything else to do with you. But he reaffirms Peter and restores him and reaffirms his love. He gives Peter the opportunity to three times express, outwardly affirm the love that he has for Christ. And then Jesus tells him what he expects of him, which is to tend my sheep. Another example, Numbers 12. This one is somewhat similar to, I think, our own situation. Numbers 12, 1 to 16. Let me make a correction. It's similar in terms of some of the sin, not in terms of the personage, okay? So I'm not saying any of us are like Moses or Aaron or Miriam. Uh, that is certainly not the case. But in terms of what was happening, a insurrection, a rebellion, a clamoring after Moses and the leadership that God had put there, that was happening here with Aaron and Miriam. Numbers 12.1, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman, whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard. Here, Miriam and Aaron are, they are grumbling against Moses because of Moses' position. Because Moses has the greatest position in terms of the leadership of Israel. Not that Aaron and Miriam are insignificant, they're also important people as well. Miriam was the one that led the women to worship the Lord after they were delivered from Egypt. And Aaron is the high priest. So both of them have significant standing and positions in terms of the people, but they're not above Moses. Moses is above both of them, though Miriam and Aaron are likely older than him. And they're grumbling against him because of the Cushite woman. Right? He married a foreigner. He's not even married to an Israelite, to one of our own people. Now, is this the unforgivable sin? Is it even a sin that Moses married the Cushite woman? No. So they're just manufacturing sins, fault-finding, finding something by which they can knock Moses down a notch in order to promote themselves over and above him. And they're putting themselves, hasn't God spoken through us as well? Is Moses the only one that God speaks to? So you see what they're doing here? It's an undermining, an insurrection. They're grumbling against the leadership of Moses. Now, it says in verse 3, The man Moses was very humble, more than any man who's on the face of the earth. That, that's where the, it breaks down in relationship to our situation because this could not be said of me or probably anyone else here. But it was true of Moses. He was a very humble man. He wasn't 
out for position. He wasn't out for self-glory. He wasn't doing this because he wanted to be in the spotlight. He was content to be a shepherd in Midian and to be left out of it, yet God raised him up to this position. Then suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. He called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against him, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Notice there, Aaron is acknowledging their sin, that they were wrong in what they had done and that they had sinned against the Lord. He says, Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. There, Moses, who is the one that was sinned against, what is he doing? He is willing and ready to forgive. Not only that, he's praying to God for God to heal her and to forgive her of her sins. So did Moses hold a grudge against Aaron and Miriam? No, he immediately is interceding on their behalf because he wants what is best for them. Moses cried out, Oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. And afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So though God forgave her and ultimately healed her, she also had to bear her shame for a period of time. Here for seven days, right? For seven days as a testimony of what she had done and an example to others to not repeat the same sin, right? So there were some consequences because of what she had done, though there was also forgiveness. Okay, another example, 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Verses 5 to 11. Second Corinthians 2, verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. For one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what have I forgiven? If I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. 
so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So here, in this situation, there was a man, and it could be the man of 1 Corinthians 5, though it's not stated here, but certainly that would fit the bill, um, someone who was committing sin, unrepentant sin, he was put under punishment by the church, which is to be cast out, to be handed over to Satan, as it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that this man had to be removed from the body because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. However, now this man has come to the knowledge of his sin, and he is repentant of his sin, and what does the Apostle Paul expect of them to do? To forgive him and reaffirm their love for him. To bring him back within and not to overwhelm him with excessive sorrow. Not to constantly throw his sin back up into his face. Remember when you did this? You remember when you did this? You, do you remember when you did this? Right? No, we shouldn't do that. If he's sorrowful, if he's repentant, then he expects them to forgive and then reaffirm their love for him. Begin to practice the love there within the body of Christ. Okay, then one other example. Acts 13. Acts 13.13. 13. And this one will take a couple of cross-references to, I think, see the whole picture. Acts 13.13. 13. This is the uh, forsaking, the abandonment of Paul and Barnabas by John. John Mark. When John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas when they were on their first missionary journey, they set out and they took John Mark with them, and part of the way he abandoned them, forsook them, and returned back home. Acts 13.13 13 says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Pathos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So here, John leaves returns to Jerusalem. Then Acts 15, 36 to 39, it doesn't say a whole lot about it there, just that he left. But in 36 to 39, it's obvious that this leaving was not good. It was not good. It was an abandonment by him. And it proved that he was not trustworthy to go on another trip like this. Acts 15, 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, whom had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus." So here, when there is this desire to visit the churches again and to encourage them and see how they're doing, Paul and Barnabas went on the first journey together. Now they're going to go on the second journey together. Barnabas wants to take Mark with them. John also called Mark along with them. But Paul is saying, no, we shouldn't take him with us because he deserted us once. And if he deserted us once, he might desert us again. He had not sufficiently proven himself. Now, it is worth noting that at least here, they are in the same church together, right? It's not that uh, Mark is not at the church with them. They're at the church together, but it's in terms of ministry. In terms of ministry and trusting him and depending on him, the Apostle Paul is unwilling to take John Mark on this trip. 
So he was willing to be in the church with him, but he was unwilling to entrust to him this ministry and to entrust his own life to him at this point. Then 2 Timothy chapter 4, later in life, after more time had passed, then the Apostle Paul found him to be a useful minister alongside. 2 Timothy 4.11 Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. This here at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul desires Mark to be brought with Timothy and he finds him useful for service. This is because sufficient time has now passed, in which case John Mark has proven himself to be faithful and there is a restoration of trust between Paul and Mark and so now he is willing to trust him. So I think these passages... um, help us have clarity in terms of what God expects of us in relationship to what may come or may not come. We don't know what the future holds with any of the people who have left. Uh, Again, we know that there is the potential, possibly, more so now than there was a couple weeks ago, that there may be some forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And I think, you know, when we're thinking about this, first we have to consider our own sins against God. Right? That is always primary. We have to consider our own sins against God and the mercy that God has shown to us. Also, we have to consider, at least in my case, the sins that I was complicit in over the last several years against other people. Because the way the ministry was for the last several years, we were also taking part in conflict, in controversy, right? Uh, here, right here in this building. Standing right here in this area, uh, there was a pastor from Tulsa who was slandered, right? Who many evil things were spoken of publicly. And I sat right there idly by, silent and passive, and did nothing to stop it, but gave approval to those things. So we took part in these kinds of sins as well. But every single person that I've gone back to and asked for their forgiveness, every single one of them has given forgiveness to me. So we ourselves are experiencing the grace, the kindness, the love, the forgiveness from other people. So we need to consider that as well. And then also, I think we need to consider what we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, May 7th. We want to set a new direction for the course of the church, and that is 1 Corinthians 13, that we want to walk in love, right? This is what has been deficient and lacking in the church is love. Well, we have an opportunity then, possibly, to set this new course, to manifest this love, right, in a proper way. And so I think if those opportunities present themselves, then it is a test from God for us to prove whether we're sincere, whether we are committed, whether we really mean the things that we are saying. Now, again, those who have walked away and who have betrayed um, and forsaken the assembly. There, there has to be acknowledgement of that sin. We, we cannot deny that. So there has to be that. There has to be true repentance in what has happened. But also, I think, if they desire to repent, 
And if they desire to be reconciled and restored, then I don't see how we can deny that biblically, right? According to the Bible, I don't see how we could say, no, we forgive you, but we don't want to see you again without ourselves incurring the judgment of God, right? So if that is the desire and if they are willing to go through what that entails, which is not going to be an overnight process, but it has to be, everything has to be dealt with accordingly, But if that is what the desire is, then I think we have the obligation to at least play it out and see what comes of it. See what comes of it and pray and be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then just to be open and honest with one another and to talk about these things and and see what comes of it. So with that, again, I will be meeting with Tanner today and I am meeting with Chris Thor on Thursday. And again, I don't know... Uh, they may think we're still crazy and they want nothing to do with us. And if that's the case, then that's fine. Uh, but if that is not the case, I hope that's not the case, but if, but if that's not the case and there is a desire to repent and to have some manner of reconciliation, uh, then I think we need to pursue that and do it according to what the passages, what the scriptures teach. And so that's what I think the path we need to be on. Um, and Lord willing, that's what we'll pursue. Uh, and again, you know, as I've thought about it, certainly the easiest thing would just be to move on and be done with it altogether. But in terms of what is most God-honoring and what brings most glory to Christ, well, I believe reconciliation and restoration is what brings the most glory to Christ because it gives us the opportunity to manifest the very gospel in our midst. Uh, and so, you know, I know that that can be hard because these were very deep wounds and they're very fresh wounds and we've just moved on and got through all of this and now it's being revisited because uh, I didn't think that they would tear each other apart that, that quickly but but they have and now there is this new uh, aspect a new chapter of this current controversy and so we just need to to go through it and see what comes of it so that's where we're at but it won't be done in secret and it won't be done without openness and without talking about exactly what's going on. So uh, I'll meet with those men and then update you on what's going on there and then we'll proceed in according to the will of God. That's all that we can do. So let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you for your word. And Lord, how it is that your word does provide everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, it does equip us to live the Christian life. And Lord, we know that everything that we face, Lord, every single day, every situation, Lord, it is a test from you. Lord, we face a very hard test back in February and March. And Lord, we thank you that you gave us the wisdom. Lord, you gave to us the strength to be able to endure that. Lord, and that we were able to make it through that together. And and Lord, we are so grateful for your kindness to us. But Lord, also for the faithfulness and the kindness of the people who are here today. Lord, that they were unwavering, that they were faithful. Lord, that they stood behind us and we're willing to, to do that, and Lord, we really know that we stood together against that onslaught, and we thank you for preserving us, and Lord, that this church has continued on, uh, when Lord, it could have easily all fallen apart at that point, 
So we are grateful for that, and we thank you that you equipped us, Lord, for all that we needed to make it through that test. But now, Lord, we see another test on the horizon, Lord, of a different nature, um, because there are those who have left us who are now uh, having second thoughts, Lord, who are having doubts, who have seen the problems, Lord, that were there in that ministry and who have left that but now are still, Lord, in this kind of uh, in-between state. And, Lord, we don't know what the future holds in regards to any of them. But, Lord, we do want to do your will. And, Lord, we want to do what is pleasing to you. And, Lord, we do desire for their repentance. Lord, we desire for them to seek forgiveness. And, Lord, for there to be some manner of reconciliation with them. So, Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, this might be done and, and that, Lord, it might show that we belong to you, Lord, the love that we have for one another. Lord, you have forgiven us of so many sins. Lord, each one of them deserving an eternity in hell. So, Father, help us to understand that. And because you have forgiven us of so much, Lord, to also ourselves be merciful and to be gracious toward one another. Lord, even when the sins are so severe and have caused so much hurt and pain, Lord, we pray that we would be able to be forgiving and to be loving and merciful and kind and tender-hearted toward others. So, Father, help us and give us all that we need. Lord, give us the faith that we need, Lord, to be obedient to you. Lord, as well, we want wisdom. Lord, we also know that... Uh, these sins can have a tendency to repeat themselves and that, Lord, there are those who have patterns of sin. And so, Lord, we want to be on guard and not to be foolish and open ourselves up to more heartache. So, Lord, we, we desperately need your wisdom and your grace, Lord, your mercy during this time. And, Lord, we pray that you would equip us with everything necessary for life and godliness so that we might do your will. So, Lord, be with us. Bless us as we go from here. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. Continue to bless us this Lord's day. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.